Have you ever had the situation where you knew someone, either like they moved away or you moved away, and then you met them, but just like 15, 20, 25 years later, if, if they're the same, that's quite surprising, but often they, people have changed a lot, especially over decades. I mean, I have gotten a lot of Facebook requests from like people who I graduated high school with, and I went to, I mean, I graduated high school in 1999, so these are people who are, you know, decades, kids, dogs, all sorts of things, which is often what their Facebook profile picture is of their kids or the dogs. I kind of recognize them, and their surnames, maybe they're different, but they've changed so much. And they change so much. They're different people than they were 20 years ago. And that's a little bit what like the story is in, uh, in Judges 19 through 21. It's a story with no names. Did you catch that when we read the Bible? The story with no names at all. And this helps hide the shame of the people involved, as well as illustrates just how far Israel has run from God. They are unrecognizable. In Judges, there is no happy ending. The story starts with, this is the first verse of chapter 19. In those days, Israel had no king, which is a bad thing, because uh, we know what happens. And then also, now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, a concubine was like a, a wife, but not really someone who's equal to a wife, never intended for God's people, let alone the Levites who were in charge of leading all of Israel in worship. It's not a great start. And the story ends with verse 25 of chapter 21, the very last verse in all the judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. It's not great. In most story arcs, what you get, especially if, I don't know if you're into really bad Christmas films, uh, Netflix has loads of them. It's amazing. I love watching bad films. There's some great bad films out there. Just make fun of them. If you're ever into like mystery science theater or anything like that, that's the kind of stuff I love. I love making fun of stuff. Anyway, in most story arcs, especially in Christmas Hallmarky kind of films, you have a typical your typical movie. You have normal life, then uh, some kind of conflict happens. There's all this tension that builds, and then there's a resolution, and then there's all the tension that gets relieved, and eventually there's back to normal life again. Often a very happy ending. Judges is not like that. It is a downhill spiral, a, a ride with, or or maybe actually if if going up is tension, is tension mounting. Tension mounting, tension mounting, tension mounting. And so there's conflicts, and sometimes they get resolved a little bit, but not really in a satisfying way, not in the way that the people of God really need. And if you thought 2020 was bad, it has nothing on Judges, especially these last three chapters, nothing on Judges. The title of the sermon is Horror. Horror. Horror is the ending to a story built by everyone doing what they see fit doing what's right in their own eyes. When we rely on what's right in our own eyes and how we think the world should go, we create horror, and we can't do otherwise. So we're going to look at three things. We're going to chop this up in three different ways. We dehumanize others, we are double-minded, and we're directionless. We dehumanize others, we're double-minded, and we're directionless. Let's start first with what it means to dehumanize others. So, you have the Levite. And the concubine. The concubine is unfaithful. Uh, she leaves for her family. The Levite tries to win her back. He succeeds. The, the concubine's family is, is maybe the bright spot here, very hospitable. On their way back home, they stop by the Israelite city of Gibeah. Now, I think this scene in Gibeah is perfectly set for a creepy kind of horror film. It's dark. The fog is out. 
They're in the town square. Maybe like leaves are rustling here and there. An old man from the outskirts comes by slowly. He says, looks around, um, come to my house. Just don't stay in the square. Why? Like, what's wrong with that? The old man doesn't answer. He just heads back and then they follow. But like a good horror film, they can't escape the horror by going to the cabin in the woods. The horror will find them, and it does. Some wicked men from the town want to rape the Levite. The Levite, good leader as he is, of course, throws the concubine out to them instead. She's raped and abused throughout the night. She's laying there on the steps, and the Levite simply tells her to get up. She can't, so he puts her on his donkey, takes her back, and murders her. Cuts her body into 12 different pieces, sends into different parts of Israel. I mean, to cut up a body, that takes time, it takes energy, it takes effort and forethought. How dark and hardened is this Levite's heart? It ceases to be a horror film for entertainment, and we see the real tragedy and tragic darkness of life. She's, she's already been abused and raped until she's nearly dead, and this is the answer of, of the person who's supposed to be taking care of her? This is horror. And if you've read this story and reading the story, if you're like, this sounds a little bit similar to, to Sodom and Gomorrah, you'd be right. The way the author is writing the story is to try and call back to that story in Genesis of Sodom and Gomorrah. But what we find is Gibeah is not just like Sodom and Gomorrah, Gibeah is worse because the ending is murder and dismemberment and these are God's people who ought to know better. So when the wicked man, men, want to rape these travelers going through their city, they have to dehumanize them. When the Levite hands the concubine over to them, he has to demonize, uh, dehumanize her. When he kills her and dismembers her, is he treating her like a person? No, it's something less than a person, something less than human. It's dehumanizing. These are examples of people ceasing to be people. They become objects. They aren't reflecting God in any way. They're just useful to me and how I want to use them. I want to prove a point or I want to like, um, I have, uh, they're just an object for my lust, whatever the thing might be. They aren't for any other purpose except for how they're going to serve me. The only creature to try and remove the humanity from humans is humans. Us. We're the only ones. Now, in these stories, the narrator doesn't often give us an interpretation. He'll lay the story out brutally honest as it is, but it's really not difficult to sort out what God thinks of them. He's made himself clear in so many ways. He's made it so clear in the past, first, that humans have dignity. The reason why humans have dignity is God breathed himself in an intimate way into them to, to, for them to live. No matter what people believe, no matter where they come from, no matter who they are, whatever, all the other things that we try and separate ourselves with, they all have dignity because of what God has done. Secondly, concubines. Not allowed. Have one wife only. Concubines are the product of a male-centered society. Third, raping others, not allowed. Fourth, killing others, not allowed. Fifth, dismembering them, guess what? Not allowed. All this kind of stuff. This is not how God's people were supposed to live. They're so far away. And I don't have time to go through all the things that are going wrong in this story. I actually, that was difficult in preparing the sermon um, for like that very reason. Like This was difficult to prepare because like, what, what can we focus on? There's a lot of wrong things going on here. So what we had to do is kind of generalize and kind of come up a bit and see where are the themes. And one big category is we create horror when we dehumanize other people. Now, this story, maybe it seems so far from us, and, and hopefully in some ways it does. Like, how can we really apply it? 
Well, Jesus helps us with that in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus teaches us about what God's law is really about and how it doesn't just apply to outward actions and behaviors and stuff, but actually inward to the heart, he tells us, if you're angry with someone in your heart, you've committed murder. Full stop. Not like you sort of committed murder or it's like committing murder. In the eyes of God, you have committed murder. You're guilty of that. You've murdered them in your heart. And alongside murder, we can add rape and dismemberment and all the other kind of things. The horrors of our hearts reveal how far away we can be from God. It might even just be like a split second of rage or anger, but we know, we know our hearts are just like that Levite. And we may not follow through and do all the horrible things, but our hearts are exactly the same. It levels the playing field. And Jesus, God himself, is telling us that God views our thoughts, our thought world, on the same plane as murder itself. Now, in some ways, we can't really sin against someone unless we've dehumanized them to begin with. To dehumanize someone is to strip them of the dignity that God gave them to begin with. Now, why would anyone do that? Well, because if we saw another human before us, a human, and all the glory that has been given to him or her by God, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. Think of the most beautiful thing you could think of, the most beautiful mountain, the, maybe you've been on a good walk, or you, the ocean, or like an animal, whatever the thing is. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the, God created all those other things just as a theater for us to experience His glory and he put all his time and energy, like the, um, the, the, the love and, and the breath and the intimacy into us. Nothing else. Nothing else is like a human in all creation. We've been given a certain glory. We've been given a certain honor that no other created being has. In the presence of that reality, if that was in our heads, we can't use and abuse others. And so what we have to do is take others down a notch, put ourselves up a little bit, and then we can use them, then we can sin against them, then we can have those horrible thoughts towards them. Then we can remain angry with them and think all the horrible things that you'd do to them if you could. Or all the things you could do if, if, if only, you know, lust could just take, take over. Before we sin against anyone, the sin before the sin is dehumanizing them. Not seeing them how God sees them, which is images of Him. For example, let's take a difficult work colleague. A kind of catch-all phrase I like to use for this often is Janet from HR. Apologies if there's a Janet listening to this. It's not about you, I promise. Maybe they don't get anything done, this difficult work colleague. Maybe they're dead weight. Or maybe they're sneaky in how they talk about their accomplishments. Maybe they play down your accomplishments. Maybe they try and steal your achievements and try and dress them up as their own. We would all be tempted to be angry and lash out at that person. And there's a level of righteous anger in there. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, there's also unrighteous anger that is part of that. Now, let's say, now, with that difficult work colleague, you've been given an opportunity. Another colleague is talking badly about this person, and now's your chance. Like, oh, I know, this happened to me. I mean, you're just blowing off steam, right? You're just venting. You're just processing it, right? Or whatever, all the things we try and tell ourselves to do the things we want to do anyway. But in your heart, what you've done is dismembered that person already. You've taken them apart limb from limb. They aren't in the image of God anymore. They're merely an object to destroy. Dismemberment, though literal in the story, 
is a perfect kind of metaphor for us when we treat people without the dignity that they deserve. We try and take them apart piece by piece, attempt to wrench from them the image of God in them that gives them their worth. So let's not play down our thoughts, our actions, or our dispositions. We all dehumanize others, and this is nothing short of dismembering them in our hearts. So, we dehumanize others. We're also double-minded when it comes to justice. Uh, a few examples here. When the unnamed Levite kills the unnamed concubine and sends her off to various places of Israel. I mean, how ironic is this? The Levite doesn't get it. He's asking for justice, but he's killing and murdering this woman in his care at the same time. That's a work of complete injustice. Justice for me, but not for thee, is what's going on here. So Israel gets an army together. He marches against the Benjamites because Gibeah was a town um, contained in the tribe of Benjamin. And all of this is on the terms of justice in their own eyes. Well, they raped and abused this woman, so we will kill them. And the people who didn't join us in this kind of covenant ceremony marching against them, well, we can kill them too. Now, they did inquire of God in this. They weren't completely blind going in. They asked God, well, should we march against them? Should we go to battle against them? And God, in his justice, uh, tells them to battle together. In fact, look at um, Judges 20, verse 35. This is um, Israel coming against the tribe of Benjamin. And it says, after um, the Benjamites were defeated, it wasn't that Israel defeated them. Verse 35, the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. The Lord was the one who was doing it. But see, in these battles, many people on both sides die. Surely, this is also God bringing about his justice. He wants Israel to march against Benjamin to because of the injustice is there. But while that happens, Israel loses loads of people as well. Loads of people die for that. That's God's justice against both sides. He's not picking sides here. He's against everybody here. There's also something telling here uh, in the way the rest of the Israel destroy the Benjamites. They completely destroy the towns. Like verse 48 of chapter 20 talks about this. This is the type of warfare that God called Israel to engage in when they battled against outside nations. So the way that Israel was to fight against these other nations was to completely decimate and level the towns, not take any riches for them, um, but completely destroy it and leave it in rubble. Completely destroy the towns they conquered. And now we see Israel's job is to do is to inflict just that same kind of warfare against itself because Israel has become not Israel. The transformation from God's people to just like everybody else is complete. And even in asking God what they should do, their justice is double-minded. Justice on my terms, what makes sense to me. And we're often okay with cheap justice, right? We settle for what's convenient. We say we care about justice, but are actually ambivalent about doing anything about it. We might ride waves of whatever's kind of fashionable for the day, you know, put things online or whatever and talk about it and, you know, get woke. But really, we're not really doing anything. And that's really what justice... Justice is about setting wrong things right. It's a very difficult thing to do. There's so many wrong things in the world of judges, right? There are so many wrong things in our world. We'd like to think that we've evolved spiritually. And yeah, we're all woke now. We all know what's going on. But I can't help but think that we really aren't that far along comparatively. Sure, we may not be killing people. We may not be planning battles. 
of course that's a good thing. And that's the outward actions and behaviors. We don't want people to be doing that, but inwardly in our hearts, are we really any different than these people? But have our hearts really changed for the better? I mean, at the very least, surely the Black Lives Matter protest, I mean, just to mention one thing, shows us there's so much progress that needs to be made in this world. God's justice is often inconvenient for us. Um, Psalm 146, 7 through 9 says this, He who is the Lord upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. This is the Lord's justice. This is setting wrong things right the way that they ought to be, the way the Lord wants them to be done. By ourselves, we're double-minded when it comes to justice. We want the best bits and convenient parts, and everything else we'll just kind of like gloss over. Or we close our eyes and hope that when we open them, the problems won't still be there. Did you know that if you're my age or younger, if you're male and you die, most likely the cause of your death will be suicide. Do you think that stat is going to get any better anytime soon? Of course not. And before suicide, of course there's mental health issues and all sorts of things, there have been and will continue to be a meteoric rise in mental health illnesses and issues that are not going to end whenever the end of lockdown comes. They're here to stay. Now, we're a small church. We don't have all the answers, and if we did, we wouldn't be able to put all the solutions into place anyway. But this is just kind of one example where things need to be set right. Hmm? I mean, humans were never meant to live this way. Humans were never... Putting, killing yourself is there couldn't be any further opposite from human flourishing. And all the other things that lead to suicide being an inevitable answer, all of that is on the opposite side of what flourishing looks like. That is not right. We should not be okay with that. Now, as a church, I don't know whether or not we'll be able to help tackle suicide or mental health. I don't know kind of where, where we'll be going or what God's calling us to. But I do know that if our God lifts up those who are bowed down, that's what we do. I know if our God gives food to the hungry, that's what we do. If our God upholds the cause of the oppressed, the causes of the oppressed, that's what we do. It is rarely convenient. But it's what we do because that's the kind of people who we are. Maybe another way to define justice is, is this. Being inconvenienced for someone else's good giving of yourself, not for yourself, searching out that inconvenience so that someone else might get something out of it. Now, let's not let our horror lead to being double-minded in justice. Let's seek after real justice. It's an exciting thing to be a part of, and it's, it's, also, it's what our world is crying out for. So we talked about how we dehumanize others, how we're double-minded in justice. The last thing we see of ourselves in the story is that we are directionless. We're directionless. So we're in chapter 21 now. It says, after the battles, after all like the dismemberments, and now the tribe of Benjamin is reconciled somehow with the rest of Israel. I mean, it's almost laughable. The beginning of, verse, of chapter 21 is almost laughable of... Uh, of how Israel's responding to this. Yeah, um, in chapter 21, these are the first two verses here. Um, actually, verse 2 of chapter 21. The people went to Bethel, 
where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Lord, God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Why? Why? I think we kind of have an idea. And Israel, I think you kind of have an idea too. Not just because you just killed them all yourself, but also your own dark hearts led to this problem to begin with. It's like all of Israel was out drink driving and they crashed their car, experienced pain, and they were wondering why they're experiencing pain. It's because you were driving drunk. That's what happens. But their lament, actually, when you think about it, can make sense in that there can be a right and harsh consequence against someone that you love. And even though that consequence would be right and it's difficult, it still can hurt because you love that person very much. But here, I think, is where Israel is at the moment. They are, they are experiencing a gap, an incompleteness. A tribe has nearly been wiped off the face of the earth. They're incomplete and they feel that loss. They were supposed to be members of a family. Now they are dismembered from each other. After all this fighting that they have, there's a truce, but the Benjamins have an issue now. They need wives. Well, why do they need wives? Because wives mean the tribe will continue. No wives, no babies, no tribe. But all those left standing here are looking around, looking at each other, because they just all took an oath to not provide wives to the Benjamites. So what they do instead, um, instead of seeking the Lord in this, they find a legal loophole. They tell the Benjamites, this is in um, verse 19 of chapter 21, they say, while we're at a festival for God, while we're out there, our hands raised, worshiping God, praising Him, and 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 lamenting before him as well and praying and all those kind of things while we're at this big worship service you come and kidnap the women to be your wives and when the fathers complain we'll just say hey you know do us a solid these these benjamites they need wives and technically you didn't give your daughter away she was stolen from you so you're in the clear and they kind of need those wives so just kind of like overlook it okay this is called how people live without a king how people do things it's right in their own eyes they're just trying to put the pieces together. They don't know how to do it. They're kind of, in order for me to continue, I must have to steal for myself. Surely we've all been there before. Maybe not with kidnapping wives. Um, hopefully not. But also stealing for ourselves whatever we think we need. Like, if, if I don't have this, how I, I don't know how I'm going to survive. Now, I don't think I need to point out the irony of encouraging people to kidnap women for their wives as part of a festival for worshiping God. Though, I guess I kind of just did. Well, not only is Israel feeling an incompleteness internally, they are just kind of going with whatever works externally. They're kind of seeking God, or at least they did at one point, but not really. They're directionless. They're careening from one human solution to another. Nobody here would say Israel is flourishing. Like, oh, they are getting together as a community, and they're coming up with creative solutions together to be able to work together and move forward. No, it's obvious they're being held back. They're not flourishing. They're, they're being held back and they can't see it. And that, of course, is the same for us. We seek out human problem or human solutions to our problems that we create and we don't get better. What we do is we stack up one horror on top of another horror on top of another horror. And instead of looking for help above ourselves, somewhere out there, we get used to it. And we think that's what life is kind of like now. It becomes the new status quo and we're okay with it. If only there was one person in all of Israel 
who stood up and spoke out. If there was a person, they were far too afraid of what the others thought of them, and they kept quiet, as far as we know. And the descent into horror continued. I've driven a boat a few times in my life, um, a long time ago, now that I think about it. But when you drive a boat, there are waves that come at you. There's a current where you'll drift. Uh, there's the wind that will be constantly kind of steering you this way or that way. And as those things are coming at you, there's a temptation to, oh, the waves are coming here, I'm going to go the opposite. Or the wind's going here, I'm going to go the opposite. I'm going to like kind of constantly course correct. And you're zigzagging, you're spending energy and fuel, and you'll end up off course. The only way to get where you want to go is to look beyond the waves, beyond the current, beyond the wind. You need a compass heading. You need a compass heading. A compass is fixed externally. A compass doesn't change depending on conditions. It tells you the direction, regardless of the conditions. And you're heading on that compass on your boat. You need That's all you need in order to point the boat, regardless of whatever the conditions are going. You have a little heading that you're going towards, and you just go there. Now, it's easy for us given to give in to the conditions. That's a very natural thing. It's a human instinct to give in to the conditions. But natural human instincts are not what we need. We need something beyond our instincts. We need something beyond our circumstances. We need a fixed point, one that is always true. And that's where we point the boat. We end up less frantic, steering all over the place, more calm, more relaxed, because we know where we're going. Without God, we are directionless. With Him, we will always have a direction. And that's more than just a point. That's a movement towards somewhere. In Israel, there is no king. Yet God is always there. He was always supposed to be their king. In fact, that's the reason why the people didn't have a king to begin with. Because God is supposed to be that king, but they didn't want that, and what they got was horror instead. So our horror dehumanizes others, encourages us to stay, uh, encourages us to stay double-minded, and leaves us directionless. Now, I only heard recently of the story of Sanad Zegedi. Now, I'm probably going to be messing up his name, so um, apologies to Mr. Zegedi for that. Here's a picture of him right here. Um, he used to be a member of a Hungarian right-wing political party with strong ties to anti-Semitism. His own political career was based on anti-Semitic policy. He even wrote a book about anti-Semitic ideas. In the middle of his political career, uh, this kind of massive thing came out that he had Jewish ancestry, and even that his grandmother had survived Auschwitz. And discovering this identity changed him. He resigned his political post. He bought thousands of copies of his anti-Semitic book and burned them all. He eventually became an Orthodox Jew. Discovering his identity changed him. The horrors of his past, the reality of concentration camps born out of anti-Semitic uh, anti ideas that he ascribed to, even his own um, uh, um, buy into that paved the way for him to know who he really was. He would probably never become an Orthodox Jew unless he had to go through that process. A changed identity always leads to change of actions. And this is what's going on with the people in our story. Or at least maybe what they're missing out on. Because they don't fully realize, first, before anything, before they're a nation, before they're a tribe, before they're a family, they are God's people. 
They're God's people. They're acting like they're their own people. Or maybe at best, they're a nation, but nothing more than that. If they realized they were God's people, they would have went to God more. They would have consulted more on how he should live, how, how they should live. They would have had different lives. They would have prevented some of this horror that we got to read about today. And of course, that's the same for us. We're in that same boat. We kill and start a war. We go to war and lament the death. We create a void. We, meant, we lament the lack. In our need, our recourse is to steal for ourselves, we think, just to survive. We create horror. And anyone who's read any history book on any period of time can tell you that's true of all humans. I hope some of this gives you the idea that we aren't good enough to get out of the holes that we've dug for ourselves. We don't have what it takes. None of us does. In fact, that's a basic tenet of Christianity. You don't have what it takes. We should be totally fine and okay with talking about where we don't have what it takes. And this is why Jesus had to come down and take horror upon himself. The greatest horror the world has ever seen is God dead. The worst thing ever. The problem is, we've seen images like this a million times before, and our senses are deadened. The cross that we boldly proclaim and talk about and make into jewelry. It was a torture device meant to slowly kill human beings. And it slowly killed Jesus publicly and in humiliating ways. Of course, we have you know, paintings of these things. We have jewelry. We have all sorts of things. It's like having a, a nice painting of an electric chair on your walls. It's, it's not something we would have. And I'm not saying we can't have paintings or jewelry or whatever of the cross or something. I'm saying... Are we alive to really, are, are, are we seeing what's really going on there at the cross? The horror of the cross. I don't think we have an imagination to fathom how horrible it was. Of course, the physical thing, yeah, horrible. Uh, like, that's, Lord willing, something I'll never experience. But the Son of God being cursed by the Father. Not just all my horrors upon Him, all my horrors upon... I can't handle all the horrors upon myself. But everyone who follows Jesus, all of those horrors upon him, all of the experience and, and darkness and weight of hell upon him, it would be the experience of hell itself upon Jesus as he's on the cross. And he took our horrors so that he would be our king. We are bought from our own little house of horrors to a kingdom where he reigns. Where we don't do what's right in our own eyes. We don't do what seems right to us, but we do what he says. Why? Because he's changed us. Like Zegedee, we were set against him. We were set against his people. We built our lives on anything else but him. Sabotaging any hope of a spiritual life, any hope of a real relationship with our maker. Then God changed us by taking all that sabotage, taking all that horror, placing it upon himself, and now we can walk upright. We aren't under the weight of our own horrors anymore. And what's more, he not only relieved us of that weight, he gives us a new life. We get the Holy Spirit, God himself, living in us. When once we were far from God, now we are brought near by the power of his blood. Where once horrors lived, now God reigns. The Holy Spirit in us. 
And we don't have to live to like try and pay back Jesus for all that he's done. No, he's a good king, a generous king, a loving king, and there are no debts in his kingdom. We don't live to pay him back. We get something better. We live to experience the fullness and the joy of living in Jesus' kingdom. Life to the full, in alignment with all his ways. To not rely on your own understanding, but on God through his spirit. Not be held to our circumstances, but we behold God through His Son. Not limit our life to what we think is right, but join God the Father in His mission to bring wholeness to the world. If we are in Christ, our horrors are not ours anymore. Our horrors have been put to death. They were His. They're not even His anymore because He killed them. He destroyed them. They were His. He's taken them from us and put them to death. And He says, It is is finished. That's the reality of getting to live with Jesus as our King. Without Him, we are destined to a life of horror. With Him, we get to truly flourish as we live in the kingdom led by the King. Let me pray.